Hello, and welcome to Right Now with Ralph Martin. Last week, we wrapped up the first season of our podcast, and now we're excited to begin our second season. To kick off season two, the host you all know and love, Dr. Ralph Martin, will offer a two-part series on the mission of the Blessed Virgin Mary and how we can participate in that mission. Let's get started with part one. Here is your host, Ralph Martin. I'm going to talk about Mary and uh, her mission, our mission. And I know that sometimes people have mixed feelings when they hear about a talk on Mary. Like those of us from the charismatic renewal or evangelical Catholicism say, gee, I hope he doesn't overdo it. You know, I hope, you know, he doesn't obscure the centrality of Jesus, you know, and, you know. You know, so people will get a little nervous. You know, what's what's Ralph going to do? Where Where's he going? Is he getting too Catholic? You know, whatever. And then there's other people say, gee, I hope he doesn't minimize Mary. I hope he goes far enough. I hope he doesn't downplay her, you know, right? And some some of you who used to be Protestants to become Catholics are saying, well, gee, you know, that was really a big obstacle for me. You know, I, I really had to work through so many things. I'm still kind of working through. I kind of look, took an act of faith that it's all okay and it all works okay and it's all balanced. Well, it is. So, honestly... Nobody loves Jesus more than Mary. You ever think about that? Nobody loves Jesus more than Mary. Nobody is more devoted to his mission. Nobody is more united and obedient to the will of the Father. Nobody is more filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a pretty deep thing going on in Mary, and I hope I could share some of it. Let's just begin with God's amazing choice of how he decided to save the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I still find it utterly amazing that the word would become flesh in the womb of a woman and stay there for nine months. You know, God, you know, in Mary's womb, you know, developing, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't have thought of that, you know. I couldn't have thought that up. I would have never thought of it. And, and in so many ways, we're going to encounter the truth that God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. And we have to be open for what Cardinal Sunans used to talk about as the surprises of the Holy Spirit. And one of the surprises of the Holy Spirit is how God decided to save the world. He became flesh, took on human nature in the womb of probably a teenage girl in an obscure town, in an obscure village. And then, nine months later, Jesus is born, but he doesn't kind of all of a sudden sprout up into, you know, 30-year-old status. He, he goes through the whole life cycle, and he... When 12 years old, he kind of started to chomp at the bit a little bit, you know, led by the Spirit, of course. And he was, you know, in the temple, you know, dialoguing with people. People were amazed at his wisdom and knowledge. And, and Mary and Joseph came up to say, we were anxious for you. We were worried for you. Why did you do this to us? That's what they said, you know. There's a little family stress and tension there. You know, maybe Mary and Joseph were blaming each other. You should have kept him. I thought you were watching him, you know. No, I thought you were watching him. I thought we agreed that this was going to happen, you know. You know, and, and there, was, there was definitely family tension. Now, in the reading, we're reading some amazing things about 
Jesus appearing, walking through doors that are locked, and people thinking they're seeing a ghost. He says, I'm not a ghost. You know, ghosts don't have flesh and blood and bones like me. And give me a fish. Do you have anything to eat? And he ate a fish in front of them. Now, what the heck is that? I mean, being able to walk through locked doors, appear and disappear at will, and eat fish and have people put their hands into his wounds. I mean, this is really a pretty amazing thing. This resurrection life is pretty amazing. And then Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple. And Simeon, who's been told by the Holy Spirit that he's going to see the Messiah before he dies, is impelled by the Spirit to come to the temple, and he takes the baby in his arms. Baby Jesus. God, by the way. I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing. You keep thinking about it, keep pondering it. It's, it's pretty amazing. Takes baby Jesus in his arms and prophesies. He says, this child will be the cause for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. He will reveal the secrets of hearts. And Mary, your heart will be pierced by a sword. So right from the beginning, there's a prophecy that Mary's going to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. A sword will pierce your heart. He's going to be a sign of contradiction. He's going to be opposed. We know what happens in the end. He's going to be the cause for the rise and the fall of many of Israel's people take a stance towards Jesus for or against them. He's going to reveal the secrets of hearts. He's going to show what's going on in people's hearts. And a sword will pierce your heart. Fast forward, Jesus is a big boy now. He's even bigger than he was when he's 12 years old. He's 30 years older, thereabouts. And he and his disciples are invited to a wedding. Now, I think that's wonderful and amazing that Jesus went to weddings. I mean, that, that sanctifies weddings, right? Just like when he walked on water, he sanctified water. When he was baptized, he sanctified water. Jesus sanctified weddings. Now, Mary, as you know, says, Jesus, they don't have any more wine left. And Jesus says, what is that to me, woman? And then Mary doesn't get into an argument with Jesus. It's best not to get into arguments with Jesus. He's pretty sharp in arguments. Look at John chapter 8 where he's arguing with the Pharisees. I mean... They definitely come out in the losing end of that argument when he says, by the way, your father's the devil. You know, he was just very, very direct, very, very to the point. But Mary goes and tells the servants, oh, you know, do whatever he tells you. So Mary somehow or other had faith that Jesus, in his human compassion, would do something about the predicament of the wedding feast, and he does. In an amazing way. I mean, he makes enough wine for a dozen wedding feasts. You kind of wonder what they did with it all, you know? And, and what we're really seeing there, what the Holy Spirit's preserving for us to see in Scripture, is a mother-son relationship. Now, Scripture scholars don't really know why Jesus, quote, changed his mind. And there's all kinds of speculation. But what we do know is his mother asked him to do something, and he did. And maybe he wasn't planning to. Did he accelerate his mission because his mother asked him to do something? 
But what that shows us is, you know, when mothers ask their son to do something, if it's at all possible and seemly and right, they do it. Isn't that what good sons do for good mothers? When their mother asks them to do something, if it's possible to do it, they'll do it. And that's why Mary is seen as a powerful, mighty intercessor. It's because of her relationship to Jesus. You know, sometimes I say, well, Jesus just used Mary's body. No, he didn't just use Mary's body. The mother-son relationship is powerful, it's permanent, it's enduring, it's real. It's a personal relationship. It's not a use relationship. God is all about relationship. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are a relationship of communion, of love. And they're inviting the whole human race into that communion of love, profound love, personal love, powerful love, pure love. And Mary, of course, has been drawn into that communion of love more deeply than anybody ever has. And right now is living in that communion of love more purely and more powerfully and more completely and totally than anybody ever has. And she has been assumed into heaven, body and soul. Now, we know all the story of People coming to Jesus, there's a big crowd around him. Somebody comes up and says, by the way, your mother and brothers are outside. And then Jesus says, hey, my mother and brothers and sisters are those who do the will of God. That wasn't a put down of Mary. That was illustrating what everybody is called to. And everybody who does the will of the Father, Jesus takes as mother and brother and sister. That's pretty amazing. That, that's pretty wonderful that that the Lord would receive us like that as members of the family by doing the will of God. Then we know what happened at the cross. How would you feel if someone that you were closest to in the world was stripped naked for all bystanders to see, was nailed to a cross, was spit upon, was mocked, how would you feel to be right there seeing it? And that's the agony that was going through Mary's heart. That was the piercing of her heart that Simeon prophesied. That was her sharing with Jesus in his suffering. And of course, Jesus, in some of his very last words, said, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And all scripture scholars virtually agree that that wasn't just for Mary and John, but that Mary was handing over his, Jesus was handing over his mother as the mother of the disciples of Jesus. John was the beloved disciple. John Paul II has an amazing meditation where he says, Mary already before Pentecost had more of the Holy Spirit than anybody ever had. She was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit at the Annunciation. But that Mary wasn't in the upper room just praying for the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit, but she was praying along with them for more of the Holy Spirit for herself because a new phase of her mission was about to begin. 
She was going to pass now from being just the mother of Jesus to becoming mother of the disciples, mother of the church, and there was a new empowering of the Holy Spirit that was coming to her for her new mission. St. Thomas Aquinas says when, when new phases of our mission begin or new, new phases of our life or our life takes a certain turning, we should expect additional sendings of the Holy Spirit to equip us for the new phase in our life, for the new time in our life. Now, it took the church hundreds of years to try to figure out what the heck was going on in Jesus, to try to figure out how to talk about one person, two natures, what language to use, how to conceive this amazing, mysterious thing that was happening in Jesus of Nazareth. It also took the church centuries to try to understand what was going on with Jesus' relationship to Mary and Mary's relationship to the church. And there's some very early church councils that defined her as the mother of God, which was a way of safeguarding the divinity of Christ. But then, as we moved into more recent centuries, it seemed like the Lord has now begun to give Mary a more active mission, a more public mission, actually intervening into the destiny of nations in the history of the world in a very public, manifest way. I'm only going to talk about three of them. In 1531, an Indian peasant in what's now the Mexico City area was walking on a pathway up a hill, and he ran into a beautiful lady from heaven. And the beautiful lady told him to go to the bishop and tell the bishop he needs to build a church there. Juan Diego went to the bishop and told him that he met a beautiful lady from heaven who wants him to build a church. And the bishop said, prove it to me. Go back and ask her for a sign. Now, Juan Diego didn't want to run into the lady again because his uncle was very sick and he just wanted to go to the uncle and take care of the uncle. And so he went around the hill rather than over it because he didn't want to run into the lady again. But the lady found him <laughs> and, and very gently corrected him for avoiding her and said, this is December 12th, 1531. Go back to the bishop and I will give you a sign. First go to the top of the hill, and you'll find roses blooming there. They weren't supposed to bloom at that time of year, that elevation. So he puts the roses in his cloak. He goes to the bishop's house, and you know what happened. He opens his cloak. The roses spill out, which was amazing itself. But then the image of this beautiful lady was left imprinted on his cloak, and it's still there. And you can see it today in Mexico City. And scientists can't figure out exactly what, what method was used to get it on the cloak. And there's all kinds of books now have been written about the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, and, and what you can see in the pupils of her eyes and the symbolism of it all. And what it is, it's, it's a picture of the lady, the woman clothed in the sun, with the sun that the book of Revelations talks about in chapter 12. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and the stars around her, crushing the serpent. Now, the Aztec religion at the time was, was really demonic. 
They, they did thousands of human sacrifices, cutting out people's hearts as a, as a sacrifice to demonic snake gods. Mary was sent to crush the power of Satan over the new world. And even though evangelization hadn't been going very well before her appearance, after her appearance, over the next seven years, eight million Indians were baptized. An amazing evangelist, just by her presence, just by a presence from heaven and a permanent sign that you can still see to this today that can't be explained. Here, uh, the, the words that Mary pray, uh, said to Juan Diego. Let's just take a moment and let these words penetrate our hearts. How, how gently she talked to him, how tenderly she talked to him with so much love and so much encouragement. Hear and let it penetrate into your heart, my dear little son. Let nothing discourage you, nothing depress you. Let nothing alter your heart or your countenance. Do not fear any illness or vexation, anxiety or pain. Am I not here who am your mother? Are you not under my shadow and protection? Am I not your fountain of life? Are you not in the folds of my mantle, in the crossing of my arms? Is there anything else that you need? Isn't that beautiful? I actually have a little holy card with that written on it that I keep in my little Magnificat. And every now and then, if you're feeling any illness or vexation, anxiety or pain, uh, any discouragement, and any agitation of your heart or your countenance, get it out and remember who you're loved by and remember her reliability. Remember her. Remember who she is and who she's speaking on behalf of. In 1854, Pope Pius IX decided that time was ripe and all the, many of the bishops in the world had asked them to do this and there had been a growing understanding that in order to prepare Mary for her very special role, the Lord, in anticipation of the sacrifice of Christ, preserved her from original sin. It's called the Immaculate Conception. It's not the virgin birth. That's something different. This is the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Mary was actually conceived from the very first moment without original sin to prepare her for the most unusual mission of containing within herself the Son of God. She's just a creature. She's not a goddess. She's just a creature. And she was preserved and redeemed by Jesus Christ in anticipation of his sacrifice in order to prepare her for this mission. On February 11th, 1858, a little 14-year-old girl in southern France ran into a beautiful lady in the countryside. And she didn't say very much, this beautiful lady. All she said is, I am the Immaculate Conception. Bernadette had never heard this language before. When priests and scholars asked her, what did the lady say to you? She says, I don't know what it means. She says, I am the Immaculate Conception. This was a confirmation from Mary herself about what Pope Pius IX had done uh, four years earlier. Now, when I was reading about St. Bernadette and Lourdes, I kept saying, what's the message? I couldn't find the message. 
The message is Mary herself, and the message is Bernadette herself. Bernadette experienced tremendous suffering, tremendous abuse. People berated her. They, they didn't believe her. Uh, terrible things happened. She stuck to her story. She said, I saw her, and this is what she said. I saw her, and this is what she said. And then Mary one day said, dig in the dirt here, and a stream's going to come out, and many people are going to get healed in this stream. And those are the famous waters of Lourdes. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been healed physically and spiritually, and a certain number of them have been studied by medical scientists, and they're absolutely unexplicable miracles where limbs grow back and bones that weren't there get, get there and things happen that just couldn't happen any other way except by the power of God. And so four or five million people every year, 150 years after this, come to Lourdes every year and experience an action of God in their lives, many of them. Notice who Mary is appearing to, a peasant who couldn't read or write, a 14-year-old girl who didn't have any education. But what I mainly talk about is Mary's appearances at Fatima and how it relates to the glory of God. Thank you for joining us today. I know we stopped right where it was starting to get good, so I hope you'll be with us next week to hear exactly what it is Ralph really wants to talk to us about. In the meantime, we invite you to help us spread the word about this podcast by leaving us a rating or review, following or subscribing, or sharing on social media. We'll see you next week.